Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Saturday, March 25th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. The U.S. conducts airstrikes in Syria after a contractor is killed. Canada and the U.S. agree to roll back asylum access. A Ukrainian commander says Russia is losing steam in Bakhmut. North Korea claims to have tested a nuclear-capable underwater drone. World Athletics bans trans women from competing. The jailed hotel Rwanda hero has his sentence commuted. The U.S. House GOP passes the Parents' Bill of Rights Act. Utah passes a law requiring parental consent for child social media use. French protesters set Bordeaux City Hall on fire. And a Michigan appeals court rules the parents of a mass shooter can be tried for manslaughter. In our top story, the U.S. conducts airstrikes in Syria after a contractor is killed. Here are the facts as agreed upon by New York Times, France 24, Al Jazeera, Reuters, NBC, and Al Arabia. In response to an alleged Iranian drone attack that killed a U.S. contractor in northeast Syria Thursday, U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin said the, said the Biden administration ordered airstrikes against facilities in Syria's eastern Derez Zor governorate used by groups affiliated with Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps. The Department of Defense said that Thursday's attack occurred in Al-Hasaka, a region controlled by the U.S.-backed Syrian Democratic Forces, or SDF, when a one-way unmanned aerial vehicle struck a maintenance facility on a coalition base. The U.K.-based Syrian Observatory for Human Rights, or SOHR, reported that 11 Iranian-backed fighters were killed in the U.S. strike, with six fighters killed in Dirazor City, two in Mayadeen, and three at a military post near the town of al-Bukamal along the Iraqi border. Iranian media reported that no Iranians had been killed and denied that the target was a Tehran-aligned military post. It was reported, however, that a rural development center and a grain center near a military airport were hit. Israel and the U.S. have carried out repeated airstrikes against government forces and their Iran-backed allies in the Deir zor region, which straddles the Iraqi border. The U.S. also accuses Iran of attacks against facilities housing the U.S. also accuses Iran of attacks against facilities housing U.S. forces in Iraq and Syria. Meanwhile, it was reported Friday that the Al-Omar oil field, which houses a U.S. base, was struck with missiles in a second attack. According to the Pentagon, no U.S. troops were injured or killed, and no infrastructure was damaged. A civilian house nearby was reportedly hit, however, injuring two women and two children. Okay, those were the facts. Let's start our narrative spins with the pro-establishment narrative from Fox News. The U.S. will not tolerate Iranian attacks against U.S. forces in Iraq or Syria. Any attack by Iranian-backed forces will result in strong reprisals, as the U.S. must defend its positions against Iranian aggression. Iran has deployed its terrorist militias throughout Syria and Iraq, and U.S. forces must counter these threats whenever necessary. The establishment critical narrative comes from al-Mayadeen. The U.S. has relentlessly attacked Syria as it continues its illegal occupation of the country. Iran is a friend of Syria, 
and has been invited by the government to help protect Damascus from Western-backed terrorists. Though the U.S. says it's in Syria to fight the Islamic State, in reality, its only goal is to steal oil and block any resistance to Western neocolonialism. Our next story, Canada to roll back asylum access per an agreement with the U.S. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Al Jazeera, BBC News, CBS and NPR Online News. The U.S. and Canada reached an agreement on Thursday to allow border officials from both countries to turn back asylum seekers traveling across their shared borders without considering petitions for sanctuary. The agreement will expand a policy called the Safe Third Country Agreement that codifies that the U.S. and Canada are both safe countries for refugees, but that refugees must first apply for asylum in whichever country they arrive in initially. The agreement will move to close a loophole created by a 2004 asylum pact in which the U.S. allowed Canada to turn migrants away at official points of entry, but not at unofficial crossing points. The agreement will pertain to the entire 9,000-kilometer, or about 6,000-mile border between the two nations and is set to go into effect this weekend. As a part of the agreement, Canada will also accept 15,000 migrants from throughout the Western Hemisphere over the next year through established legal protocols. The U.S. and Canada formally confirmed the agreement on Friday per remarks by President Biden in Ottawa. In 2022, nearly 39,000 asylum seekers crossed into Quebec outside established ports of entry. Many migrants crossed using Roxham Road, a small road in northern New York that ends at the Canadian border prompting some Canadian officials to call for harsher restrictions. Scott, thank you for the facts. Our first spin is a pro-establishment narrative coming from Reuters. In the past few years, an overwhelming number of people have crossed the border between Canada and the U.S. using unofficial ports of entry, taking advantage of loopholes and prior agreements and Canada's relatively liberal refugee resettlement policies. This new agreement will close loopholes that have allowed migrants to cross unlawfully. And Al Jazeera brings us the establishment critical narrative. The updated safe third country agreement violates both Canada and the U.S.'s obligations to asylum seekers. This will not stop immigration and will instead force those vulnerable people to take even more dangerous routes and could help to incentivize human trafficking. This agreement is undemocratic dangerous, and counter to the norms of the international community. You ever have any uh, weird experiences crossing the border into Canada? I have not been to Canada. One time my, my, my uh, wife and I were driving from Seattle to Vancouver, and we forgot our passports. So we had to drive four hours to Vancouver, got turned away at the border, drove back, and then we drove back again with the passports. Oh, my goodness. What a pain. The border was pretty secure on that day. Let me tell you something. (laughs) According to a Ukrainian commander, Russia is losing steam in Bakhmut. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Ukraine's Kapravda, Evening Standard, the Institute for the Study of War, and France 24. Russian forces in the Donetsk city of Bakhmut are losing steam, Ukraine's commander of its armed forces, Oleksandr Sirsky said on Thursday, pledging that his army will soon launch a counteroffensive to retake ground in the area. The account matched earlier analysis from the UK's Defense Ministry, which said in an intelligence assessment earlier in the week that there is a realistic possibility 
that the Russian assault on the town is losing the limited momentum it had obtained. The Institute for the Study of War, or ISW, a U.S. military think tank, also said earlier in the week that the tempo of Russian operations in Bakhmut appeared to be slowing amid reports that it's relocating some of its forces elsewhere. However, in its latest assessment, the ISW reported that Russian assaults in Bakhmut were continuing and said that it was still making marginal gains, including in positions to the east of the Bakhmutovka River, which runs north to south across the middle of the city. Elsewhere, in Donetsk, Russian forces launched a missile strike in the city of Kostiantinivka, reportedly striking a invincibility center, a location where Ukrainians can access electricity, heat, and water amid widespread blackouts. Five civilians were killed and two more were injured. Meanwhile, appearing before Congress on Thursday, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken suggested that diplomacy should play a role in determining Ukraine's future borders. Responding to whether the U.S. backed Ukraine in seeking to retake Crimea, he stated, If our commitment and our agreement with Mr. Zelensky is we will support you whatever you want to achieve, including no Russian presence at all in Crimea, then we're asking for a world of hurt. He nevertheless stressed that these have to be Ukrainian decisions. All right, Eric, thanks for that rundown. We have an anti-Russian narrative from Pravda. Russian attacks on Bakhmut are losing momentum. Ukrainian forces will soon exhaust Moscow's attempts to take the city and will turn the tide on fighting to recover the ground. And a pro-Russian narrative comes from TASS. Russia has practically surrounded Bakhmut, and all supply roads in and out are controlled by its artillery fire. It's only a matter of time before Russia takes the city. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives coming from the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's a 10% chance that Russia will capture or surround a large Ukrainian city before June 1st of 2023. Are you feeling optimistic about the end of this war? Oh, I mean, honestly, the, the, the worst thing that could happen is that it drags on long enough for some weird incendiary thing to happen that escalates it into a larger conflict. That's the worst case scenario. Whether, whether Ukraine or Russia end up declaring victory, I think it's going to be a situation where both sides end up declaring that they won yeah. whenever it's over. But I just don't want it to escalate into a, a greater you know, world conflict. It just seems like they're treading water at this point. To answer your question, no, I'm not. <laughs> okay. Okay. North Korea claims a test of a nuclear capable underwater drone. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Reuters, NK News, The New York Post, and Radio New Zealand. North Korea on Friday claimed to have test fired a new nuclear capable underwater attack drone that it said could trigger a radioactive tsunami during a military exercise overseen by leader Kim Jong-un this week. According to state media, the new weapon system called Hail or Tsunami, detonated a non-nuclear charge in waters off the country's east coast on Thursday after traveling at a depth of 80 to 150 meters, that's 260 to 500 feet, for more than 59 hours. In development since 2012, the unmanned attack drone is allegedly capable of creating a super-scale radioactive tsunami via an underwater detonation and destroying naval vessels and ports. The underwater drone exercise comes as the U.S. and South Korea concluded large-scale joint military exercises dubbed Freedom Shield 
that began March 11th, and after the U.S., India, Japan, Canada, and South Korea kicked off military exercises last week. During the 11-day U.S.-South Korean drills, Pyongyang reportedly launched several cruise missiles from its South Hamyang province on Wednesday and tested a short-range ballistic missile off its eastern coast on Sunday. While North Korea intensified its military modernization campaign and carried out a record number of weapons tests in 2022, South Korea and the U.S. are stepping up their military cooperation. Both sides cite the need to strengthen their defensive capabilities. Those were the facts, and our first spin is a pro-establishment narrative coming from Japan Times. For decades, North Korea has invoked Washington's supposedly hostile policy to justify its increasingly aggressive posture. Yet, it was Pyongyang that resumed escalation after Seoul and Washington suspended most of their joint exercises during the Trump administration. By constantly conducting new weapons tests and expanding North Korea's nuclear capabilities, Kim has solidified the regime's pariah status, not broken it. And the Global Times brings us the establishment critical narrative. North Korea's weapons tests are a symptom, not the cause of regional tensions. The U.S. bears the main responsibility for declining diplomatic relations with North Korea, especially as the Biden administration has switched back to a confrontational course following former President Trump's efforts at de-escalation. By fueling conflict, the U.S. hopes to establish closer ties with Japan and South Korea to cut into China's regional influence. The Metaculous Prediction community gives us a nerd narrative for this story. There's a 37% chance that North Korea will possess enough fissile material to produce at least 100 warheads before 2024. You don't hear that word fissile too often. That's my first time. Uh, we've, we looked it up and it means, you know, material that can undergo fission like, uh, you know, uranium, plutonium, things like that. It sounds a little too close to missile, like a fissile missile would be like a nuclear missile. <laughs> and it also sounds a little too close to thistle, like the, uh, the thing you can get caught on your sweater, bramble yes. type thing. There's, there's gotta be some correlation there. Fissile <laughs> missile though, that could be a new superhero. That's, that's pretty could. good. Yeah. I can see comic books already. In our next story, World Athletics bans trans women from competing. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Reuters, and Associated Press. On Thursday, World Athletics, the international governing body for track and field, banned transgender women athletes who have gone through male puberty from competing in female world ranking competitions beginning March 31st. The new regulations will also require athletes with differences in sex development, or DSD, to reduce their testosterone levels to 2.5 nanomoles per liter, down from 5 for a minimum of two years to compete in the female category. The new rule does provide provisional exceptions for athletes with DSD, also known as intersex, already competing in previously unrestricted events, requiring them to reduce their testosterone levels to 2.5 nanomoles per liter for six months prior to competing. Transgender athletes won't be allowed to compete under the tighter testosterone rules. However, the governing body announced a committee, chaired by a transgender athlete, to contemplate the issue of transgender inclusion. The decision was reportedly made after consulting a number of stakeholders, including 40 national federations, the International Olympic Committee, or IOC, and UN experts. In 2022, World Aquatics, the international governing body for swimming, 
also banned transgender women from competing in female competitions if they experienced male puberty after the age of 12. All right, we have a controversial story with some divisive narratives here. Let's start with the right narrative from Fair Observer. Emerging science shows trans athletes have a biological advantage over women even after lowering their testosterone levels. And regulations like these are needed to protect the integrity of sports and the women who are at the risk of being left to compete for second place. It's essential to prioritize fairness over the woke ideas and political correctness that has many participating in today's rendition of The Emperor's New Clothes. A left narrative is coming from Athlete Ally. The World Athletics decision is deeply discriminatory, biased, and politically motivated. Not allowing transgender athletes to follow their passions because of who they are, on the assumption that they automatically have an unfair advantage over their cisgender peers in female sporting events, violates the IOC's framework on fairness, inclusion, and non-discrimination. These regulations don't protect the integrity of women's sports. They further the policing of women's bodies. And the conversation brings us a progressive narrative. Biological differences, along with differences in gender identity, race, culture, religion, and sexual orientation, must be accepted and celebrated. To include or exclude is a binary way of approaching a non-binary situation. Establishing a female category, excluding anyone with performance advantage, and an open category, including intersex, non-binary, and gender-fluid people, can be a fair and inclusive solution for transgender women in sports. The hero of the Hotel Rwanda incident is to be freed from prison. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, CNN, Associated Press, Washington Post, U.S. News & World Report, and ABC News. On Friday, Rwanda's government said human rights activist Paul Rusa Sabagina would be released from prison after the country's president, Paul Pagame, commuted his sentence. Rusa Sabagina, a 68-year-old Belgian citizen and U.S. resident, was allegedly kidnapped by Rwandan authorities in 2020. He was convicted on eight charges, including terrorism offenses, and sentenced to 25 years in 2021. The sentences of 19 others convicted with him on terrorism-related charges had also been commuted after requests for clemency. However, since their underlying convictions remain as serious crimes were committed, their commutation may be revoked if similar crimes are committed. The U.S. designated Rusa Sabagina as wrongly detained, partly because of the alleged lack of a fair and equitable trial. Meanwhile, Rusa Sabagina, who received the U.S. Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2005, asserted that he was arrested for criticizing Kagame over human rights abuses. Rusa Sabagina, a former hotel manager, is credited for risking his life to shelter hundreds in the Rwandan genocide. An outspoken critic of Kagame, he left Rwanda in 1996, first living in Belgium and then in the U.S. His life inspired the 2004 Hollywood film Hotel Rwanda, for which actor Don Cheadle was nominated for an Oscar for his role as Ruse Sabagina. Scott, thank you for the facts of that story. Our first spin is Narrative A, coming from African Arguments. Why did a man who saved thousands of lives once end up in prison? Because Rusa Sabagina exaggerated his role in helping refugees escape the massacre, profited from the genocide, and had political aspirations. 
His admission at trial to having ties with a terrorist organization that sought a violent overthrow of the government is a testament to his crimes. Today, he walks out free because Rwandans forgive the unforgivable and don't get stuck with their past. And narrative B comes from the New York Times. Rusa Sabagina was a dissident caught in the Rwandan ruler's authoritarian net where Kagame exerts total control, plunders Congo openly, imprisons political rivals, and rules the country with an iron fist. He has increasingly transformed Rwanda into a dictatorship, brought the media and the judiciary under his rule, and suppressed the opposition. Rusa Sabagina was innocent, yet he was treated as an enemy of the state. His release is a victory for Kagame's opponents and other Rwanda heroes trapped outside the country. Mm, I smell a sequel. Yeah, they're never as good as the first one, though. (laughs) That's true. The U.S. House GOP passes the Parents' Bill of Rights Act. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, U.S. News & World Report, The Hill, and Forbes. The Republican-led U.S. House on Friday fulfilled a campaign promise and passed the Parents' Bill of Rights Act by a 213-208 vote, with five Republicans joining Democrats in voting against it. The bill calls for schools to make their curricula public, mandates teachers to meet with parents, and provide parents with information about any violence on school grounds. It would also require that parents be given a list of reading materials available at the school, and a more significant say in school policies. There were also amendments added to the bill that would require schools to report when transgender girls join girls' sports teams or are allowed to use girls' restrooms or locker rooms. Elementary and middle schools would be required to get parents' consent before allowing a child to change gender designation, pronoun, or name. Some see the legislation as merely symbolic, as the Democrat-led Senate is unlikely to bring the bill up for a vote. All right, another controversial story. We have a Democratic narrative from CNN. Republicans are promoting this bill under the banner of parents' rights, but it's nothing more than red meat for their base, which wants to curtail vital school debates about race, gender identity, and sexuality. Rather than wasting time on manufactured problems, The House should focus its attention on the real issues that American students face, such as teacher shortages and rampant gun violence at schools. Fox News giving us a Fox News is giving us a Republican narrative. This is a much needed legislation to remove the political wedge that the increasingly woke school system seeks to impale between families. Despite claims to the contrary, there's no book ban or mechanism for revealing a student's gender identity in this bill. It merely provides a route for parents to rightfully know what's going on in their children's lives and participate in molding their learning experience. And in a related story, a new Utah law requires parental consent for child social media use. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Guardian, Daily Mail, Washington Post, Forbes, and Fox News. Utah Governor Spencer Cox signed a law on Thursday requiring anyone under 18 to have parental consent for the use of platforms such as TikTok, Instagram, and Facebook, as well as prohibiting these companies from employing techniques to cause minors to develop an addiction to the platforms. Cox said via Twitter that it was his responsibility to protect Utah's children from these toxic platforms, adding, Youth rates of depression and other mental health issues are on the rise because of social media companies. 
The new legislation also requires apps to block minors' access to social media between 10.30 p.m. and 6.30 a.m., though these restrictions will be adjustable by parents, as well as prohibit children from receiving direct messages from people who the child hasn't followed and block underage accounts from search results. Companies have until March 1, 2024 to implement the measures of House Bill 311 and Senate Bill 152 or face potential punishments in civil or criminal court. Lawmakers in Connecticut and Ohio are working on similar bills that would require children 16 and under to obtain parental permission to sign up for the apps. U.S. President Joe Biden has also asked Congress to strengthen digital privacy, data, and targeted advertising protections. Thank you, Scott, for the facts. Our first spin is a Democratic narrative coming from Foodzilla. This is simply the next step in the far right's attempt to rescind American civil liberties. Despite rights groups pointing out this fact, GOP lawmakers and the parents who vote them in want full control over America's youth so they can spy on and prevent them from accessing the digital world. This could backfire in the long run as these children will likely remember what their parents voted for. And check that with the Republican narrative from Fox News. Democrats care more about having swag on TikTok than they do about protecting children from the undeniable harm caused by social media. The risks posed to our kids have been known about for a long time, but the left wants young people to remain glued to their screens so that they are raised by the Internet rather than their parents. This is about the rights of American children as well as their parents. There is a nerd narrative for this story. It says there's a 30% chance that the U.S. will ban TikTok before 2024. That's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. In our next story, French protesters set Bordeaux City Hall on fire. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Guardian, Mirror, CNN, and Politico. In France's southwest city of Bordeaux, the front door of the town hall was set on fire as as nationwide protests over pension reforms gripped the country on Thursday. Trade unions claimed that 3.5 million Frenchmen took to the streets, including a record 800,000 in Paris, where clashes erupted late into the night. However, authorities suggested the figure was far lower at 1.1 million, claiming that no more than 120,000 people marched through Paris. While many of the demonstrations had been peaceful, others were marred by violence and vandalism. Police added that over 450 protesters were arrested across the country, while 441 police officers and gendarmes sustained injuries. The protests were called over President Macron's move to raise the pension age from 62 to 64. Changes pushed through last week using a constitutional measure rather than putting the issue to a vote. Macron then survived two no-confidence votes earlier this week, clearing the way for the measure to be implemented. However, locals refused to roll over, and a day of mass protest and strikes was announced for Thursday. On Friday, the Elysee Palace announced that Britain's King Charles III's visit to Paris and Bordeaux, expected to start on Sunday, has been consensually postponed as a new day of protests is planned for Tuesday. All right, thanks for those facts, Eric. Narrative A comes from the Connexion. French citizens have to embrace pension reforms. With longer life expectancies and an aging population, the cost to the state's coffers has become unsustainable, 
France needs to get with the times and raise the pension age like all other European countries have done. Narrative B comes from France 24. In spite of those that say the numbers are unsustainable, the deficit for future years is not as dramatic as Macron and his supporters make it out to be. Besides, there are other ways of raising the necessary money outside of raising the pension age, including reversing the tax cuts for businesses that Macron's government itself has implemented. And here I am thinking Flambe had gone out of fashion. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Our final story, a Michigan appeals court says parents of a mass shooter can face a manslaughter trial. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Fox News, Al Jazeera, The Hill, BBC News, and the Associated Press. A Michigan appeals court ruled Thursday that the parents of teenager Ethan Crumbly, who pleaded guilty to a mass shooting at Oxford High School in November 2021, can face trial for involuntary manslaughter. The court's written opinion said there's sufficient evidence that Jennifer and James Crumbly could be charged with four counts of involuntary manslaughter because the parents provided him with the weapon that killed four students. The opinion said his parents didn't remove him from the situation at school that led directly to the shootings. Crumbly's parents were called to school after officials discovered a drawing he made featuring dead bodies with gunshot wounds and an image of a gun that resembled the one his parents bought him. They did not take him home hours before he carried out the shooting. The court said it will be up to a jury to determine whether there's causation between the parents' actions and their son's crimes. The younger Crumbly pleaded guilty to 24 state charges, including first-degree murder and terrorism. The Michigan Supreme Court had asked the appeals court to review the charges against Crumbly's parents, who face up to 15 years and or a $7,500 fine for each charge. Those were the facts, and we do have a couple of spins. The first one is a right narrative coming from Washington Examiner. This case will set a terrible precedent by charging people for not being able to predict the future. Crumbly's parents might have made some bad decisions, but holding them or any parents criminally liable for the actions of their child could take the justice system down a dark road. And our final narrative from CNN is the left spin. The court was very clear that this is a unique situation and it doesn't expect parents to be held accountable for their child's actions in every possible case. What these charges accomplish is setting the precedent that those who facilitate the committing of a heinous crime, be it the parents of the perpetrator or someone else, will have to face the consequences. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Saturday, March 25th, 2023. Each day, we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. Thank you.